0: I'm Chris Sims.
1: And I'm Franco Terrizano.
0: This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. On today's show, we're going to talk about the brutal cost of pandemic shutdowns on our healthcare system, specifically on canceled surgeries. What's going on there? We'll also discuss a ridiculous case of waste in the form of a $40,000 study to figure out what to do with a rotting shed. But first, we're going to have to talk about the federal budget, or the mythological budget that we haven't seen yet. Franco, what gives?
1: Well, hey, mark your calendars, everyone, because we're finally, finally Going to see a federal budget. It's going to be coming on April 19th. That's more than two years since the last federal budget. And it just so happens that our federal director, Aaron Woodrick, was before the House of Commons Finance Committee explaining why this lack of a federal budget is so alarming. Here's what he said.
2: Give it a listen. Uh, Given the fact that this comes at a time when we haven't had a budget tabled for two years, would you comment on the merits of increasing the debt-borrowing capacity of the government so dramatically at a time when we don't even have a budgetary framework in place to assess what this means for our country? Who wants to start, Mr. Uh, Woodrick? Sure. Well, thank you for the question.
3: Look, I, I it's troubling, uh, to say the least. Um, the fact that uh, this would be troubling even if we did have a budget. Um, we don't. Um, the, the very fact that the minister has committed to spend money without knowing what to spend it on is, is I think, getting the entire uh, budgetary process backwards. Normally, in a policy debate or discussion, you figure out what you want to do, you figure out how much money you need for it, and then you make your case for it. That's not what she has done here. She has already committed to spend money, um, but she doesn't know what she wants to spend it on. That is that is a recipe for trouble. Um, what's also curious is that, you know, as I cited some of the statistics earlier about overspending, and again, I am not suggesting the government had to get it perfect. I understand they were in a hurry and, and that not everything was going to be perfect, but by their own admission, and I believe the term that she used was preloaded stimulus. She used the term preloaded because we have seen, even into the lower lower income uh, deciles, that a lot of Canadians are banking a lot of this money. Um, and so sh- the minister has come out and said, well, we've preloaded this, this stimulus, uh, so hopefully when things turn around, people will go out and spend. And yet she also wants to spend $100 billion in the name of stimulus. So I don't understand how it is if she's she's spent more than she planned to, um, but she says, don't worry, that will turn out to be stimulus. Uh, but she also says, we still need to spend $100 billion, We just don't know on what. Look, uh, if she if the minister has a plan, I think she's entitled to make the case for that. She should do it in a budget. She should not be asking for um, parliament to, to increase the debt ceiling unless she can present a budget and explain what she wants to spend the money on. Yeah, so this two...
1: Plus years without a budget is record setting. Record setting. Even during the Second World War, there wasn't such a big budget gap. So, right now, we're spending records amounts of money, and Canadians are totally in the dark about what the plan is.
0: The fact that Woody even needed to explain that to the committee out loud is embarrassing. Two plus years without a budget. You know, Ontario just announced their budget this week. And if I recall correctly, That will mean that Doug Ford's government have presented three budgets so far. 2019, 2020, and 2021, since the Trudeau Liberals presented their last one, right?
1: Yeah, it's sad, but it's true. And uh, it really just goes to show that the argument that it wasn't possible to present a budget during the pandemic was really nonsense. Yeah, okay, it was reasonable for the feds to delay their budget last March since it was literally supposed to be two weeks after the pandemic hit. Okay, we'll give them a pass on that one. But there's no reason they couldn't have presented a budget during the fall or first thing in 2021. I mean, even every other G7 country has managed to present a budget as well as every other province except Nova Scotia. So we shouldn't be letting the feds off the hook for going more than two full years without a budget. And Simmer, I tell you right now, if our boss, old man McKay was, was going to tell me to do something and I waited two years to get it done, I don't think I'd have a job anymore.
0: Uh, yeah, Todd would have the cattle prod out way before that time, my friend. So, so much for accountability on Parliament Hill. Um, and if I do remember right, this is the same government that's currently asking for a big increase in the debt borrowing limit, something like another $600 billion. What exactly does that mean, though?
1: Well, it, that's correct. But just to be clear, that's not an ask to, to spend it just yet, but okay. it is a request to raise their borrowing limit. Um, Of course, they haven't explained what on earth they actually need it for, and if they really want that ability to borrow, they should be laying out a plan, which is exactly what a budget is for.
0: Again, the fact we need to explain this is crazy. So it's going to be not pretty, to put it mildly. What are you expecting to see in this budget?
1: Yeah, I think, it's, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say it's going to be enormously expensive for taxpayers, right? And, and with this ballooning deficit during COVID-19 and the debt breaking the $1 trillion mark and uh, the CTF's debt clock, it's a, of course, we, we have been advocating that we need to see a scaling back of federal government spending. Um, and another thing that we're going to be looking out for and ready to fight are tax increases. Now, remember, not too long ago, Trudeau promised that he would not be raising taxes. But don't just take my word for it. Here's what the Prime Minister said.
3: So will taxes be going up then?
2: No. Uh, the last thing Canadians need uh, is to see a raise in taxes right now. Millions of Canadians are out of work and looking for work. The economy is still uh, nowhere near uh, where we need it to be. Uh, We have work to do and we are not going to be saddling Canadians with extra costs.
0: (laughs) That's right. He did say he wasn't going to raise taxes. And then he's jacking up the carbon tax more than 400%. All right. So we are finally getting a budget. Stay tuned for that. We will be watching with great interest and bracing for whatever crazy spending figure comes out of it.
4: It's time for Deep Dive, a part of the show that takes a closer look into important issues for taxpayers. I know that COVID nineteen is on everyone's mind, and today our Alberta director Franco Tarozzano is on the show to discuss a very significant cost of COVID nineteen. So, Franco, what do you have for us?
1: Well, we i mean, we, we all know the direct health implications from COVID nineteen. We also know that the government lockdowns and restrictions have been hurting workers and businesses. But there is another serious cost that we all should consider, and that is more than three hundred. And 50,000 surgeries and procedures and consultations across Canada have been postponed due to COVID-19, according to a new report released by the think tank, SecondStreet.org. And it wasn't just these non-essential surgeries that were postponed. Um, I spoke with the report author and the president of SecondStreet.org, Colin Craig. And here's a clip from what he had to say about why this is such a big issue.
2: Well, there have been lots of serious cases where patients have been adversely affected, like in many cases, death, because their procedures were postponed because of COVID. In Alberta, there was a patient named Jerry Dunham. He had waited six months to have a pacemaker put in for his heart. And the hospital in Medicine Hat told him, no, sir, we're going to have to postpone it. And he held on for another two months, and then he passed away, leaving behind uh, two young children. So that was a tragic case. And in Ontario, there was a report upwards of 35 patients died because their heart procedures were postponed because of covid in quebec an actress had passed away recently because her procedure was postponed because of covid uh, but it's not just people dying there are other ways that patients have been suffering because their procedures have been postponed because of COVID. Um, in one case a nova scotia patient was worried that she was going to lose her vision because it was deteriorating And her procedure had been postponed because of COVID-19. So there's been all kinds of ways that patients have been adversely affected. So unfortunately,
1: it hasn't just been non-essential surgeries that have been delayed, and there's been some real tragedies.
4: I think Canadians rightly expect a lot out of our healthcare system, uh, given just how much we spend on healthcare in Canada. So it's disappointing to hear about these three hundred fifty thousand delayed surgeries and procedures and consultations, and of course all the tragic deaths that they lead to.
1: Well, uh, Renault, you're right. I mean, healthcare is a huge part of government budgets across Canada. I mean, here in Alberta, healthcare is the biggest part of the operating budget outside of labor. Uh, the government's, the provincial government's operating budget is about fifty billion dollars a year, and the government is spending twenty one billion, or about per person on healthcare every single year. And when you look outside of Alberta to the rest of Canada, it's clear that Canada is a big spender on healthcare as well. Um, Our country's healthcare spending as a percentage of the economy is the fourth highest among comparable OECD and industrialized countries. So we're spending a ton of money, but we rank low when it comes to doctors per capita, when it comes to acute care beds per capita, when you look at things like MRIs and CT scanners, and we rank very low when it comes to multiple different measures of healthcare waiting times.
4: With those metrics, am I mistaken saying you're referring to a Fraser Institute study? No, no, you're right. That comes from a Fraser Institute report. So I remember that because I, if I remember well, that same study actually concluded, when you compare the cost of Canada's healthcare system with its performance, Pretty hard to conclude that Canada is a, ha- a high-performing country. The high comparative spending on healthcare in Canada has not led to an equally, an equally strong performance. So it's very clear that we have some kinks to work out. Uh, what are some of the solutions?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's a great question. And you know, I asked Colin, the author of the postponed surgeries report, that exact same question, and here's what he
2: had to say. One of the things that governments could do to address this huge backlog that they have now, that's bigger than normal is to keep the public health care system but allow private clinics to provide the same services and what you would find is that some patients would decide that they don't want to wait a long time and they would decide to go to a private clinic and pay out of pocket and every time that happens the waiting list gets shorter because they're not depending on the public system so if you are waiting for the public system to provide you with a, a service and someone in front of you decides to go to a private clinic well then you get faster treatment so There's a win-win there. There's also certainly an economic benefit too when patients can pay for those procedures in Canada instead of having to go abroad to pay for those types of uh, operations.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let businesses, let entrepreneurs help with surgeries to help relieve some of the mounting pressures on our government healthcare system.
4: Absolutely. This reminds me of the uh, shouty case in in the Supreme Court from about a decade ago. It's a very famous case that had to quote, access to a waiting list is not access to healthcare. Uh, and that, that rings very true. Uh, that Kurt case actually helped open up the government monopoly in Quebec. And we've seen a lot of improvements as entrepreneurs have been allowed to help provide some healthcare services. Uh, a very very successful example of this uh, was an agreement between the sacre Carre Hospital, uh, coincidentally where, where I was born, and the uh, Rockland MD Private Surgery Center in Montreal. So what it is that they contracted out a lot of same day surgeries to a private uh, to a private operator, to focus on more uh, complex surgeries in their better equipped uh, operating theaters, and the result has been a reduced number of patients that are waiting for an operation. Hospital's operating rooms were freed up so they could focus on more complex operations. They did an average of 400 additional complex operations every single year, uh, thanks to all the space that this freed up. And this led to uh, a a lot of improvement in the treatment. Uh, For instance, breast breast cancer patients saw their average wait times for interventions go from six months to under two weeks. Uh, and the waiting times for surgeries at second care hospitals became far lower, thanks to this private uh, private sector help that they got, uh, than it than the average Quebec hospitals.
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad you pointed out to those uh, improvements to the healthcare system that occurred during that time. Um, and, and but you know, this is of course a Canadian taxpayers' podcast, and, and we have to point out that there's also taxpayer benefits from allowing entrepreneurs to help the government healthcare system. Uh, we saw that in the Prairie Province of Saskatchewan, which moved 34 day procedures from hospitals to private clinics as as a part of an overall strategy to reduce wait times. Well, it turns out it was 26 percent cheaper. To perform these surgeries in the clinics rather than in hospitals and you know also when i spoke with colin he, he mentioned that allowing entrepreneurs to offer more healthcare services could also improve our economy here's what he
2: had to say on that there would also be a, an economic benefit to the country from doing this by allowing patients to pay for services in canada because every year uh, hundreds of thousands of patients get up and they go to other countries for healthcare. So if they could pay for those procedures in Canada, some will decide to do that and that will help create jobs in our country.
1: So Colin there was referring to another secondstreet.org report that found that between 2013 and 2017, Canadians spent about $3 billion on healthcare-related procedures outside of the country. Now we're in an advanced country. Canada is an advanced country, right? We should be able to offer those services and keep... All those dollars right here in the country.
4: You bring up a really good point. And no matter what you learn in government schools, our government healthcare system is not the envy of the world. A lot of different studies have all ranked Canada's system as relatively poor when compared to other top industrialized countries. It's, it's no secret that our healthcare debate here is pretty much: Is Canada better than the U.S.? But we should look at the entire world when doing so. Uh, and if you look at the the Commonwealth Fund, does a very good report on this. And the top three countries, Ken does not in them. It's the UK, it's Australia, and it's the Netherlands. All three have a better performing system uh, than we have. They all have universal coverage, but they also share the fact that they all have some some level of business involvement in healthcare. And We don't hear horror stories from Australia or the Netherlands or the, or the UK about people having to remortgage their homes in order to pay for their hospital bills. Actually, in Australia, both government-run and independent hospitals compete with each other for patients, providing crucial incentive for both types of hospitals to reduce wait times and improve outcomes. And you know the, the, the results are pretty good. The, the Commonwealth Fund study actually put uh, Australia's system six spots ahead of Canada's in terms of access, eight spots ahead in terms of outcome, and seven spots ahead overall, ranking it as the second best healthcare system in the world. So clearly, we can do better. Yeah, I think
1: you really hit the nail on the head with that one there, Renault. Um, But you know, I'd like to leave our listeners with a quote from Dr. Will Johnson, and he's a family physician in British Columbia. Here's what he said, quote, our peer nations like Britain, France, and Australia have a sensible mix of public and private services that deliver timely care. Here in Canada, we are shackled to a clogged system. Access to everything from psychiatry to scans to surgery is just plain bad. People get hurt waiting.
4: Well, Franco, thanks for coming on and bringing this to our attention. Healthcare is a very important topic for taxpayers, especially now. And for anyone who wants to dig deeper into this, uh, into this topic, we'll include links in our show notes to uh, both the Second Street Report on post surgeries and a column that Franco and I wrote about the different healthcare systems that Canada should take inspiration from.
0: It's time for Waste Watch. This is where we make fun of the dumb things that government is doing with your money. And unfortunately, we don't have a shortage of examples. So this week, our investigative journalist, James Wood, is back. And he has a ridiculous story from Harrington Lake. Remember that? That is the prime minister's cottage property near Ottawa. James, I'm almost scared to ask, but what did (laughs) you find now?
5: Yeah, like this one is, this one's pretty goofy. So It turns out National Capital Commission, which serves as a super parks board for federal properties in Ottawa, for those who don't know what it is, they spend tens of thousands of dollars of taxpayers' money to look at what essentially is a glorified storage shed at Harrington Lake. Now, the official description for the building is a barn, and that was the original purpose of the building when it was first put up in 1900. However, it got switched over to unheated storage space and eventually fell on hard times as old barns tend to do. Now, recently, the current government has decided to throw more than $10 million worth of our money at Harrington Lake in order to renovate the property. Part of that has included $41,545 worth of studies, which is part of a project to rehabilitate the barn.
0: Okay, what? $41,000? This story is crazy enough, but to think they're spending more than forty dollars just to study, maybe, fixing this storage barn is bizarre. Hey guys, need to blow some money? Don't have any ideas? Just add government. You know, this it's so weird that this is just a study. This isn't even money that they're actually spending on fixing the thing. It reminds me of when they spent thousands of dollars on ideas to replace the windows in the main building but didn't actually replace the glass.
5: Yeah, it's 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 strange. And and that's that's the thing. About this barn When I say hard times, I mean really hard times. We have the records and we have the photos from these studies, and what they found wasn't pretty. The barn has peeling lead paint, extensive black mold, broken windows, animal droppings, and workers suspected there were a few deceased critters kind of tucked away in there too. On top of that, the NCC is planning on spending an estimated $25,000 this year just on stabilization work to keep the barn from collapsing. They told us the building hasn't been able to be used for the last few years due to safety risks.
0: <laughs> Deceased critters. Okay, yeah. you're, you're more polite than I am. What it sounds like they're dealing with here are raccoon carcasses that are rotten, bat droppings, and it's all in a building that is shot through with toxic mold. Trying to rehab something like this is bat crap crazy. Literally in this case. What? Why don't they just blowtorch the thing? How did this project get off the ground in the first place?
5: Yeah, I I asked the NCC about that. And apparently uh, the, the main reason is that they're short on storage space for maintenance operations in Harrington Lake. So they figured up fixing the old storage barn would help solve that problem. There's also a conservation aspect, as I'm sure you guessed, even though the barn doesn't have any official heritage designations, they want to keep it around because it, quote, contributes to the cultural landscape of Harrington Lake, apparently. (laughs) As for how they're managing without the barn when it came to storage in the first place, the NCC told me they had to erect, quote, again, temporary and unsightly structures, end quote, for maintenance work.
0: Heritage designations for a barn that's falling down. Yeah, secretariat is buried underneath the floorboards. (laughs) But but hold up, hold up. You said temporary and unsightly structures. Is that how the NCC put it?
5: That's what they put it.
0: Okay, so... Fun fact, actually not so fun fact, but laugh or cry, more than 40% of Canadians are 200 bucks away from not being able to cover their monthly bills, meaning they're $200 away from insolvency. And these bureaucrats in Ottawa are worried that the storage sheds at the Prime Minister's cottage aren't pretty enough. This is about tool storage.
5: That's what the NCC said. Like, I mean, they're still weighing whether or not to actually go ahead with it. But the final goal is to keep on using the barn as a place to stash things once it's all rehabbed. Now, the hard number on just how much that rehab could cost if they go through that isn't available right this second, but I'd expect it won't be small.
0: I expect you're right. (laughs) Okay. But okay. Seriously, if they do need a building, to stash the lawnmower and the rakes and shovels and stuff, what about just knocking the thing down, salting the earth, and building new? Did they look into that?
5: Yeah, I I asked them about that too. And so judging from what they said to me, it, it doesn't seem to be an option being thought about right now. All they would say is that demolition would be a significant cost and involve an undetermined amount of studies to make sure it was all done safely and in an environmentally conscious way
0: undetermined amount of studies that that sound you hear are bureaucrats salivating at undetermined amount of studies in the capital okay but really the government can't even figure out how to get rid of an old rotting barn without breaking the bank the fact they aren't even thinking about tearing this rotting biohazard down and just building simply and new is just typical of government they're allergic to common sense. When in doubt, they will delay and waste money. Everyone listening to this should remember this is just one of many taxpayer-funded projects being undertaken in Harrington Lake right now.
5: Yeah, definitely. Like We've done a couple stories on the work being done on the prime ministerial cottage property already, but this barn rehab is on the small scale when it comes to costs. They've spent goofy amounts of money on planting patterns for the gardens, window frames without even putting in windows like you mentioned before, and even the complete rebuild of an old caretaker's cottage up the road from the main building that was falling down that they wanted to turn into a new building entirely. I have a pile of access to information requests pending to get a better picture of where our money is going at Harrington Lake, and we'll have more exclusive stories as I get more information back.
0: Okay, the amount of money that taxpayers are being screwed over for here just for renovations to the prime minister's cottage would actually purchase outright four or five cottage mansions. I mean, fancy things on lakes. They belong to rock stars and NHL players. We went through the listings and did the math. This is a terrible waste of money for anyone wanting to know more. We've included links to our past reports and a petition asking the feds to sell off Harrington Lake. Thanks for coming to the show.
1: All right, that's the show. But before we uh, let you off the hook, we've got some, let's call it fan mail.
0: Yes. Let's put a positive spin on it. So here's a response I got on Twitter from a guy that goes by the handle of John1MD. He seems to be a big fan of yours out there, Franco. He's in Alberta. And all I was doing was highlighting that crazy waste of money that we just told you about, about the rotting barn at Harrington Lake, 40 grand. And he tweets at me, quote, just wondering, is this like Sarah Palin being upset that there was science money spent on studying fruit flies because she was too science illiterate to understand fruit flies or the model creature for much of genetic discoveries? Is something being taken out of context? That entire response is completely out of context. I have no idea what he's talking about.
1: Won't someone just think of the fruit flies? Come on. <laughs> well, that's a good one. I've got another good one from Twitter coming from the G-Man. He said, well, additionally, Franco is just another anti-tax ghoul who hates the public sector. And then he goes on to talk about the CTF and how that we just want everyone to be as miserable as we are. Well... The G-Man. Thanks for uh, following what we're saying on Twitter. We appreciate that. And you know what? Thank you, our listeners, for listening to the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. And please do us a favor. Please like, share, and subscribe. It really helps us get the word out to more taxpayers. And one more last thank you. And that, of course, is going to our investigative journalist and our podcast editor, James Wood, for making it sound like we know what we're talking about. Thanks, Jimbo.
3: I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.